Asia, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Diffusion, the science show that provides you with all sorts of interesting conversation starters. I'm Jackie Hayes. On this edition, we'll feature Medical Myths with Michelle Kovacevic and Free Will with Amy Bullen. And as usual, whatever else we can shove into a half-hour show. But first up, here's the news with Patrick Ruby. Virgin Galactic unveils a new spaceship. Richard Branson recently revealed a new ship to take passengers to space. The ship has been called the Spaceship 2. It will carry six passengers and two pilots up to an altitude of 100 kilometres. For the first 15 kilometres, the ship will be carried by an aircraft called White Knight 2, which is the world's largest carbon composite aircraft. The total trip is expected to take about 2.5 hours. In this time, passengers will experience five minutes of weightlessness. A trip will cost each passenger about $200,000, but according to Richard Branson, this cost could come down considerably within five years of launch. More than 200 people have already signed up for the trip, including physicist Stephen Hawking. A total of $30 million has been given to Virgin Galactic in deposits for the seats. Work on Spaceship 2's engine was delayed last year due to an explosion that killed three people during a test. Bringing images to life. A new computer algorithm called Make3D can turn any two-dimensional image into a three-dimensional model. It works by analysing the images using a powerful artificial intelligence technique called machine learning. The algorithm breaks images up into superpixels and compares one superpixel to its neighbours, analysing texture and making a judgement about its orientation in space. The technology was developed by a group of computer scientists at Stanford University, the US, led by Professor Andrew Ng and doctoral student Ashutosh Saxena. Internet users can log into the algorithm website and upload images. The images are queued until they can be turned into 3D images and then an email is sent to the user once complete. Users can then vote on how good the images are. If successful, the technology could be used for pictures on online real estate sites, video games and mobile robots. The URL for the algorithm is http colon forward slash forward slash make3d.stanford.edu Exploring and exploiting the brain. Researchers have discovered that an area of the brain is used for both searching and rewarding. The area is called the anterior cingulate cortex, or ACC, and is known to be responsible for some adaptive behaviour. The scientists, led by Emmanuel Prochik, use monkeys in behavioural experiments. The monkeys touched targets on a computer screen until one target gave them a reward of juice. They would continue to touch this target until the reward stopped and then search for another target until it would give the reward again. During the experiment the electrical activity in the ACC was monitored. The researchers found this part of the brain evaluates the monkey's task and also optimizes how they adapt to it. The electrical signals produced distinguish between different types of feedback on the monkey's behavior. 
a dysfunction of this area of the brain is thought to be a major cause of mental illness and addictive behaviour. And finally, the ancients preferred boys to girls. Victims of human sacrifice in ancient Mayan cultures were more likely to be boys than girls. The discovery was made by an archaeologist, Guillermo de Anda, from the University of Yucatan, Mexico. The bodies of 127 people were found in caves next to the ruins of a Mayan city on the Yucatan Peninsula. 80% of these were boys, between the age of 3 and 11. The other 20% were mostly young men. The priests of the Mayan civilization sacrificed children to ask the gods for rain and fertile fields. Daanda believes smaller children were preferred because the Mayans believed their gods preferred smaller things. Previously, bodies have been found with jade jewellery on them, and it was assumed the bodies belonged to girls, even though the sex of the skeletons couldn't always be determined. No, it's not your friendly neighbourhood killer whale. Free will is the freedom of conscious choice. Amy Bullen is here wondering if free will exists or if we are all just rather well-manicured zombies. You're at an auction in a bidding war over an unwashed Roger Federer sweat towel. The price goes up and you have to decide whether you will go over your predetermined limit. It feels like a lot of money to pay for a towel. But then you consider the value it will gain with age, its historical importance, and how envious your friends will be when they see it. It's a tough decision, but you decide to pay more and raise your hand. It certainly feels like a conscious decision, a weighing up between the cost of the towel and its perceived value. But what if I told you that before you had made your conscious decision, your unconscious mind was already initiating the action you would take? So in this case, the unconscious was initiating your hand raise before you had made a conscious decision to raise it. Benjamin Libet, a Chicago neurophysiologist, did a famous series of experiments that suggests that our actions are determined before we are consciously aware of them. In Libet's experiment, he asked participants to raise their hand at times of their own choosing. They are asked to note the time on a finely tuned clock when they perceived a wish or intention to act. The participants indicated their wish or intention to act came about half a second later than when the brain was emitting signals readying the participant to raise their hand. Libet's experiment puts into doubt whether we have free will. If we are unconsciously readying ourselves for an action before we are conscious of intending to make it, this takes away from the idea that we determine our actions in a conscious way. Now, not everyone accepts that Libet's results are valid, but most now accept that a brain response does happen before conscious awareness. Neil Levy, a Melbourne philosopher, explains why it makes sense for the unconscious, not the conscious mind, to make our decisions. See, we believe that our decisions are based on things like our beliefs and desires, otherwise our decisions are just non-meaningful and random. To make a decision, we weigh up these different beliefs and desires. These beliefs and desires will hold different levels of importance to us, resulting from factors such as our personal history, how long we have held the belief, and when we last experienced the belief or desire. 
The unconscious mind holds all the information and values and so has to be the one that informs us what is most important to us. So the unconscious mind, rather than the conscious mind, is determining our decisions. If you think about it, very few of our actions feel consciously decided. Most seem to follow or roll on from unconscious path to path, following some preordained pattern that has been learnt or inbuilt. For example, the unconscious mind guides our walking and every little tiny bit of action involved in it. It makes sense that the unconscious has this role. The conscious mind is slow and unwieldy. The conscious mind receives information after our unconscious mind does, making it a delayed participant in proceedings. So why do any decisions feel like they are made consciously? Well, there are many theories on this. One idea, discussed by Levy, is that the conscious mind helps facilitate communication within your brain. Think of it this way. The conscious mind focuses on the Roger Federer sweat towel and what you're prepared to pay for it. This conscious pondering refers the question to the unconscious. The unconscious comes up with all kinds of information pertinent to the decision. This might be the meaningful, Roger Federer is the best-ranked male tennis player, to the less important, Roger Federer has a cat called Ginger. All this information is passed through the areas of the unconscious mind via consciousness. So the conscious mind helps broadcast information to the different areas of the unconscious. Or, if I wanted to focus on a particular part of my decision, for example whether I liked the colour of the sweat towel, I could use the conscious mind to refer this question to the unconscious. For actions such as walking, you're following preset unconscious paths that you made when you were a child, so most walking actions are uncomplicated. If the decision is complicated, you'll want the decision to become conscious to support communication between different unconscious areas of the mind. Now, this response doesn't really explain why we experience decisions that become conscious as our own, and ones constructed unconsciously as decisions not made by us. The answer could be in the idea that the conscious mind creates a sense of self. So, if consciousness creates an integral sense of self, decisions involving our conscious mind are made with an inbuilt sense of self-participation. However, Unconscious decisions do not feel self-made because they are not created in the conscious mind. So there's a difference in the sensation of the decision, although all decisions originate in the unconscious mind. If our decisions are defined by our unconscious mind, does this mean that we don't make our decisions? No, I don't think so. A decision that is unconsciously made can still be understood to be the result of my beliefs, desires memories and brain structure. Decisions that are made based on unconscious beliefs and desires are still reflections of you. They still leave you, that is, your mind, your body, making the decision. Consciousness can be understood as a property of us rather than exclusively being us or the real us. If we stop thinking that we are only our conscious selves and instead recognize that both our conscious and unconscious events reflect ourselves, we can still be seen as controlling our own decisions. So, coming home with your newly acquired, unwashed Roger Federer sweat towel, you can explain to your family or friends, my unconscious made me do it. Of course, they're still going to laugh at you. That was Amy Bullen, going after the big questions in life. 
You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Stay tuned as Michelle Kovacevic goes after the myths in the medical industry. That was Zombie by the Cranberries. Now, how can we separate the medical myths from the medical truths? Here's Michelle to tell you how a study in the British Medical Journal has attempted to uncover the facts behind several medical myths that even doctors believe. So it seems that nowadays, every time you open a newspaper, there's been another study telling us how good chocolate is for us, how bad chocolate is for us. Make sure you drink eight glasses of water a day, eat a piece of meat the size of your fist and twice as many veggies, drink a glass of red wine a day, don't drink too much. And hang on, wait, we just found out the chocolate actually is good for you. Wow, considering how often the advice changes, how do we actually know how to separate the medical myths from the medical truths? How much truth actually is there behind the ubiquitous medical old wives' tales that doctors espouse continuously? So here's myth number one. Drink a minimum of eight glasses of water a day. What do we think about that myth, guys? I believe that. We're always told that. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, well, now even this number, eight glasses of water a day, is debatable. I mean, I've heard so many different versions from drinking two and a half litres of water a day to feeling thirsty means your body is already dehydrated, which is a point it shouldn't have to reach. Excuse me, but I find it a bit strange and toilet time consuming to constantly drink water when I'm not thirsty, regardless of my hydration level. In 1945, the US National Research Council advised that a suitable allowance of water for adults is two and a half litres daily, equivalent to about eight glasses of water. However, for more active adults, particularly those living in a warm environment, daily water need can increase to about 6 litres. Existing studies show that we obtain a lot of food through drinking juice, milk, caffeinated fluids and absorption through food, negating the need to drink that much water, which in high levels can actually be dangerous, causing blood dilution and eventually death. So my advice is just drink water when you feel thirsty. Myth number two, hair and fingernails grow after death. Have we watched enough CSI to know whether that is true or not? I have heard that before, but I'm not sure I believe it. And I'm still recoiling from the fact that in some countries people need six litres of water a day. It's ridiculous. Never heard it before. I can't. Sounds weird. Okay. Yes, I've, I've watched enough TV CSI type programs to believe that. Well, there actually is a biological basis for this myth as post-mortem, the skin around the hair or nails dehydrates and recedes, perhaps giving the appearance of increased length. The growth of hair and nails, however, requires living cells which aren't present after death. I don't know about you, but I hope I'm never close enough to a cadaver to figure out whether this myth is true or not. Myth number three, reading in dim light ruins your eyesight. Any readers here? Yep, that's true. My eyes always hurt when I read in dim light. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, my mum was very cranky when I stayed up all night reading in the dark. 
Definitely, but I always thought if you eat enough carrots, it's not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, as an avid reader myself, I'll admit that I thought this one was true as well. Maybe because of my mother's not constant nagging or because the strain my eyes would feel after a night under the covers with my torch scaring myself silly with the latest copy of Goosebumps. Well, it turns out that this soreness is only temporary, meaning that there are no permanent negative physiological effects in your eyes. It's actually you um, not blinking as much and your eyes feeling dry that causes the temporary soreness. And also, I suppose when you think about it logically, the incidences of myopia, that is short-sightedness, have also have gone up in the last century, even though we don't rely on candles or gaslights to see our latest novels anymore. Myth number four, we only use 10% of our brains. Oh, that's a tough one. I don't know. I'm a bit, I'm a bit sceptical about that one. Yeah, ever? <laughs> yeah, like skeptical. in total over your entire <laughs> life? Or just at any one time? Hmm. Patrick? Most of the time I'd say that's true for me. (laughs) Well, this one I'm actually convinced applies to some of the people I know. But as advances in neuroscience have proved, lesions to any part of the brain can have negative effects in behaviour and mental processing. We now know that certain functions are localised in different parts of the brain, meaning that to perform a certain task, we may only be using a small part of our brain. However, depending on the task you're performing, the active region of your brain is different. Interestingly, there are some parts of the brain, such as the hypothalamus, which are involved several different functions but as far as we know and remember the brain is still largely not understood there is no part of the brain that is truly inactive myth number five now this one may apply to the girls here but i'm not going to be politically incorrect and say the boys might not know about this one shaving causes hair to grow back faster or coarser or with more hairs per follicle well, I, I, I believe that yeah Yeah, I've heard that many times. Yeah. Definitely. I've been shaving long enough to know. I've seen the results. (laughs) Now, admit it, ladies, most of us had to, at some point in our lives, make the decision between waxing and shaving. The waxing advocates will tell you that shaving causes hideous stubble to grow back faster and darker. Now, as someone who has experienced both the razor and the hot wax, I can tell you that the regrowth from waxing certainly is less rough, though for me not worth the pain having triple the leg length of any normal human being. However, in 1928, a clinical trial and several trials since then have shown that shaving has no effect on the thickness or the rate of hair growth. So why do shave legs feel less smooth than wax legs a week later? Well, the stubble from shaving grows without the taper seen at the ends of unshaven or post-wax hair, giving you the illusion that it's thicker and coarser. So there you have it. Even the scientists have disproved some of medical Marvel's modern myths. So excuse me whilst I use all of my brain to read a book in dim light whilst not drinking water and shaving my legs. I might take a while. If you're feeling a bit dumb because you believed all of those myths, don't worry, I'm in the same boat. Thanks to Michelle for relieving my guilt about not drinking water and reading in the dark. It ain't necessarily so It ain't necessarily so The things that you libel To read in the Bible It ain't necessarily so Now David was small but oh my Little David was small but oh my Fought big Goliath, laid down to die. David was small, but oh my. To get into heaven, don't snap for a seven. Live clean, 
get your faults I take the gospel whenever I'm able But with a grain of salt Now Jonah, you lived in a well Jonah, you lived in a well He made his home in Fish's abdomen Jonah, you lived in a well You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. If you'd like to drop us a line, our email address is diffusion at 2SER.com. Now, I thought I'd pull up this interesting news story I saw on the ABC website about lizards that change sex. Now, have any of you guys heard of this before? Uh, Yeah, I have. I think I actually visited the same website. Oh, really? (laughs) It's actually a homegrown discovery for us. The latest thing that happened on the ABC website is they've actually confirmed a theory that they've known about for about 30 years, and that was the fact that temperature sort of governs the sex of a lizard in terms of when it's in its eggs. If the eggs are kept at a certain temperature, it'll develop into a male lizard, and if it's at a certain another temperature, it'll develop into a female lizard. So are the males hotter? Um, the males are in the middle, I think. The females are hotter or colder. Yeah, that's what I reckon. Okay. Yeah, that's, what I as well. yeah. that's interesting. Is there an, like, sort of a... Because the males, obviously, are in between the females. Is there a, a temperature where it could be a male-female lizard? Because it hasn't well, gone actually, from a male to they're a female? All, they're all kind of male-female lizards. Because from what I understand is they also have genetics. So, like, we have in humans, well, like, yeah, <laughs> and a lot of other mammals as well, the males have an XY and the females have an XX. But in a lot of reptiles, they also have these genetic chromosomes, but it's the opposite way around. So males will have a ZZ and the females mm-hmm. have a ZW. I've heard of that in birds before. Yeah. 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 yeah, so they still have sex chromosomes, but then as well as sex chromosomes, they also have this temperature over the top. So the males will actually turn into females. Mm. What happens if it's a particularly hot year and you get a lot of, well, you know, females That's the weird thing about global warming, right? Like, if it keeps on increasing, then the male-to-female ratio is going to get completely skewed. And that's for a lot of lizards and reptiles that are quite unique to Australia. So we have heaps of those really cool-looking lizards that you always see on postcards, but you've never seen in real life. Mm. <laughs> but presumably they're out there somewhere. Do you mean like a frilled neck lizard? <laughs> <laughs> and the thorny devil, that yeah. looks pretty cool. And the bearded dragon. Oh. These are all really cool lizards, but they're gonna like, be I've inf- seen a bearded dragon, that's it. I mean, influx of like males or just females, and yeah, well, that might be an well, issue. According, according to this ABC website, that not only have they said that it's definite now there is this temperature imposing on genetics. But also, they reckon that it optimises the offspring. So they yeah. did something with something called the Jackie Dragon, which I feel an affinity with, even though, like I said, I've never seen it before. <laughs> but this Jackie Dragon, apparently, they chose it because it's got a very short lifespan of like four years or something like this. Yeah. And they can look at all of their offspring over the years. And they think that this temperature thing actually optimises the number of, like, the sex ratio in offsprings over, over they the believe it's an evolutionary thing I think so what the theory was about was the fact that it's the temperature isn't just like a chance thing 
if the temperature does actually affect the sex of the offspring, it's for an evolutionary benefit. So what they did, I think, in this test was they they had like the the temperature at the level that would be right for making female lizards and then a temperature that would be right for making male lizards. But then they ho- put a whole bunch of hormones in which would actually stop that from happening. So artificially oh, change yeah. the sex. Yeah. And then they found out that the ones that they artificially changed the sex of didn't actually reproduce as well. Oh, really? Yeah. So even though they, they had this sort of intervention and those ones didn't reproduce as well, so they, they thought then that that proves that the temperature sort of regulation of what sex the lizard's going to be is actually a survival mm. adaptation. That's really interesting that it's a survival adaptation. Because if you think about it, like reptiles are much older than mammals and humans. And we've got crocs and all sorts of reptiles that have lived through whatever changes through history. And here we are, like four million years old or something, wandering around with these evolutionary in superior genes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sex determination uh, genes. Do either of you actually know how, like, how the temperature actually affects the DNA of them to make them male or female? And is it like denature the proteins in the um, DNA or something? It's something like, like it's all speculative. But the theory I've heard is that it's a dose dependent thing. So if you get enough dose of like proteins that come off the Z chromosome, then you turn into a male. Mm-hmm. And temperature somehow interacts with that protein making. Thing. Mechanism. <laughs> Mechanism, that's yeah. what I'm, I'm going to have to concur with you on that, <laughs> Jackie, because I really don't know. <laughs> one, can I, can I raise one more point? Um, so I don't know what they call them for lizards, like a litter or whatever. Uh, we, <laughs> a litter of lizards. <laughs> a litter of lizards, a collective noun for lizards. Um, assumingly, like the female lizard, when she lays her eggs or whatever, will bury them all at the same level, wouldn't she? So would all of the offspring of one particular lizard turn out the same sex because they're all at the same temperature? Um, quite often they, they can be like that, yeah. You can get, for one particular year in a particular part of the soil where the, the eggs are laid, maybe it's a bit warmer than it might be usually and therefore mm. they might all be female. Uh-huh. But um, it sort of balances out. I think it's supposed to anyway. Uh, hasn't been a problem with it so far. So we better wrap so. it up there because it's the end of the show. But uh, it's an interesting look at just the tip of the sexual iceberg. Transsexual lizards. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions or wild passionate praise, then send us an email at diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or you can subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to this program were Patrick Ruby, Amy Bullen and Michelle Kovacevic. Diffusion has been produced and panelled by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney. It's broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Jackie Hayes. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion. To get into heaven, don't snap for a seven. Live clean, forget your fault. I take the gospel whenever I'm able, but with a grain of salt, it ain't necessarily so. It ain't necessarily so 
things that you're liable to read in the Bible. It ain't necessarily so. 